Hey everybody, my name is Alex, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. Thanks everybody who listened to the last episode on Gundam Unicorn. That was a way bigger and longer thing than I remembered when I rewatched it, because I thought, like, I've seen uh, most of Gundam Unicorn, but I hadn't seen all of it, and I didn't remember that each episode is like, in some cases, over an hour of just pure, unadult-rated Gundam. Um, and for those of you who were into Gundam Unicorn or discovered it because of the podcast, you're in luck. There's a new Gundam coming out. Um, I forget what the title's called, what the title is. But thanks to everybody who listened to that. And now, for one of the few, well, not one of the few political things I'll probably ever say on this podcast, and as I'm sure you've picked up on, I, I say a lot of them whether I realize it or not, I'm going to say this to you. Go vote. If you're in America, go vote on November 6th. If you don't want to vote, go vote. Because it's important. <laughs> I have voted in every election I've been allowed to since I've been allowed to, so go vote. Um, however, on an entirely different note, we're not here to talk about any of that to this, this week. What we're here to talk about is a little Netflix exclusive anime, at least Netflix exclusive in America, but we'll get to that, called The Seven Deadly Sins. Now, The Seven Deadly Sins is a, it's a, how should I put this? It's a Netflix-licensed anime, which means that Netflix pays, pays to license it internationally, basically. But it, I think, I'm pretty sure that Netflix also paid 
for a lot of the production of this show, which is, if you've seen Seven Deadly Sins, you know it has a really slick, polished look that you don't get with a lot of anime, because anime and animation is a budget thing, is a budget-conscious medium of creation, and people don't always have the money to put their money where their mouth is, in terms of animation or quality. Um... Now it's still it's not like it's like this epically constantly fluid moving thing. It's still anime, but it's and not that anime can't do that. And there are moments of seven deadly sins that are beautifully animated, but it's not. It doesn't feel as constrained by its budget because there is some Netflix money in in there. Which is both good and bad, and the reason why it, why it's good is you get this you get this high budget, high production value show. But the reason why it's bad is because of the way you get it. Now I've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast, um, but basically what happens is the entire show airs in Japan, and then we are left to wait until. Netflix feels, or Netflix is ready, or the dub is ready, or whatever about their criteria for releasing a show has been met before we get a whole season of really any anime on their service. This happened with um, another show that I talked about on this very podcast, Kagarui. That's a bunch of episodes back. You can go find it. Um, But the problem with... Kagarui was it was hotly anticipated, it was this insane thing, and it was like in demand, so people went and pirated it. Uh, but the problem with a show like Seven Deadly Thin is once you see it, you remember it and you're like, oh, I had fun with that show. What is the other season? It's airing? Where? In Japan? Huh? And then one day you log on to Netflix, as you do, and you find that that there's new episodes, but there's only three of them, and they're calling it season two. Now, what Netflix did here is what we as anime people would see as a mistake. But Netflix doesn't have the like, lingo down in his brain to know what what it's done. It is basically said, okay, you know those OVA episodes that are supposed to be disconnected from the entire story and are supposed to, like, just exist on their own? They're supposed to lead in from the previous story and lead out onto the next part of the main story, onto the next season, quote-unquote, but they're just these fun, like, two, three, four episodes for you to get to hang out with the characters. Well, Netflix treated that like its own season. So instead of saying, these episodes are, like, filler, or episodes about, like, the episodes that are just, like, atmospheric, or what they were, OVAs, or OAVs, if you want to talk semantics, um, 
they treat it, like I said, they treat it like a full season. So in net, in the Netflix queue, you see season one, which I believe is 24 episodes. And you see season two, which is four episodes. And now we have season three, which is a full 24 episode normal season. But it's really season two. Because Netflix has become so convinced. Well, I. It's not that they've become convinced that, like, block. that dropping whole blocks of programming at a time is the right way to do things, that the binge model of viewing is the right way to do things, because they've made exceptions. They have weekly shows on Netflix now. Like, I think Hassan Minaj from The Daily Show just got his own weekly, like, nightly news-style show. Um, Joe McHale had a version of The Soup that was just a Netflix week-to-week show. Um, Chelsea Handler has, or had one. There's a bunch of them there. So they, they have the capacity to go week-to-week on these things. And... When Netflix hurts itself, when it hurts itself, is it... And I'll get to the show in a minute. I just want to kind of contextualize the watching of this kind of content on a platform that isn't specifically built by people who understand this content for people who understand this content and want to... Enjoy it. Um, it. Where it hurts itself is not that it's refusing to do week to week. Where it hurts itself is that it refuses to do week to week everywhere. Because Netflix has put out shows, week, put out anime week to week in many other countries. But they don't do it in America because in America they are aimed solely at a streaming, bingeable kind of market. They want you to sit down and use it and watch things for, like, hours at a time instead of just sitting down once a week and watching something for half an hour and then coming back the next week. But the problem is, and, and, and let me make this clear, that, is, that in itself is not inherently a problem. The problem is... Everyone around them is doing the opposite. Even a little problem child like Amazon has the knowledge to say, okay, people want these shows week to week when they can when we they finally get to them in our weird ass database, they want them week to week. So we will give them to them week to week. And yes, will you always be able to put up a dub? No. You won't always be able to put up a dub. That's the disadvantage of that kind of programming is the schedule is really tight. But if you if you figure it out and if you do it well enough, you can do you can do a dub. Look at simul dubs like like, um, Funimation has. And I know that 
recently all Funimation and Funimation and um, Crunchyroll are kind of breaking apart. They're like severing their ties because if you ha have been um, blissfully unaware of the media going of the media industry going on of the anime world, uh, Funimation has been acquired by Sony and Netflix. Um, and what's it called? Um, Crunchyroll is primarily owned, I believe, by AT and T. Now, what that means is you're no longer two companies who were built by anime fans trying to do right by anime fans. You now have huge corporations trying to buy their way into an industry, which is not an inherently bad thing. Lots of good things come with that. But at its core, what they want to do is make these purchases worth it for the for their bottom line. So they're going to, like, break apart Funimation and try and monetize that as much as they can. AT&T wants Crunchyroll to be a profit source. So those interests break it apart. But Netflix is just throwing its weight around in the form of money. And they're saying... We decide the way we do things, you know, damn damn the expect, expectation, damn the rules, uh, you know, people will watch it when it comes out, and that is true, by and large. But what's also true is, the these shows, and, and the creators of these shows, are suffering because the people watching them, who, or, or who want to watch them, can't get them. You cannot get, if you wanted to watch Little Witch Academia as it was airing, you had to go find it on the internet. You could not watch it as it was airing. You could not be part of the conversation as it was airing unless you went out and you pirated it. I didn't. I waited because I... I had backed the Little Witch Academia Kickstarter for its, like, second premiere episode, but I had also... I liked the show, and I really liked the the full-on anime show as well as the OVAs they did, but I was willing to wait for it. But people aren't willing to wait. And the reason for that, partially, is because of the way Netflix has done business. They, by making these shows bingeable and and people getting immediate satisfaction when they're told, well, you have to wait for it. You have to wait until we're ready to put the season out. Their brains don't work on that schedule anymore. They want to binge it right now. They want to watch it as soon as possible. And that's where we come to the messed up season structure of... Seven Deadly Sins. Now, is Seven Deadly Sins, like, this amazing, this incredible show? I think it's really good. I really enjoy watching it. I really enjoy spending time in its world and with its characters. But it certainly has some flaws. It's... It introduces more than the viewer is ready to comprehend before explaining it at all. And it... It had this style of storytelling that tells you there's a boogeyman in that closet. 
keep an eye on that closet. We'll get back to that closet eventually. But over here, it's the main story. And that, that format wants the kind of normal season structure, and it helps to be able to sustain to watch that as soon as it's available. Which is why a week-to-week kind of episode structure works for it. But you kind of... You, you upset the balance of that kind of narrative by breaking it apart into chunks the way Netflix has. But all that aside, let's get to Seven Deadly Sins, the show itself. So the way the show works, the, the deal with the show is you're following a character named Meliodas. And Meliodas is this, like... He looks like he's about maybe 10, 12 years old. Uh, but you're never told how old he is, but you're people expect him to be around maybe twenty, maybe late 20s, early 30s-ish. But he looks like he's 10 years old. But that's not uncommon for anime. Um, so you're just kind of like, oh, this is just the character design style. And the character designs for this show are, in my opinion, really good. The, there are... And they're really good for a reason, and that reason is they're constantly introducing characters, and characters constantly dip in and out of the main plot of the show, and they want you to remember them, so they design really unique, really interesting, really... Characters that have a feeling of depth to them just from a character design perspective, which is really kind of great. So you follow this character named Meliodas, and he is the leader of the Seven Deadly Sins. And he is the Sin of Wrath. Um, or he's called the Dragon Sin of Wrath. And he has a tattoo on his right arm. On, 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 his, on his left arm, sorry. Um, for once, I decided to be a good podcaster and open up the IMDb before, on um, the Wikipedia page before I started podcasting. So I don't have to cut this up as much. But, so bear with me on some of this stuff. And he heads this group of legendary holy knights, of which there are seven, who at some point you you're told fairly you're told fairly early on that they were cast out of the kingdom of Leonis, which is the kind of main which is the main power of Britannia, which is of course future which is of course Ancient fantasy Europe, as is high fantasy law. Um, but the they apparently killed the Grandmaster, the head of the Holy Knights, so they were cast out of the kingdom. And but you also meet this girl Elizabeth, who 
basically passes out on the side of the road. Meliodas offers to, like, help her, feeds her, his god-awful cooking, and, like, just offers to help her. Also offers to, and this is one of the best parts of the show, molest the daylights out of her. Constantly. But what's kind of amazing about this show is... Uh, it's... It's rare that you see an anime that knows so completely what it's doing with the kind of tropes of anime that it has the guts to kind of push its face in the fourth wall and say, look at us, we know what we're doing, but have that not be the thing the anime is about. And this is where Seven Deadly Sins... Part of where Seven Deadly Sins' charm comes from is it knows, it knows what it is, it knows what it's doing, and it knows how it's doing it. So, to give the perfect example of that is kind of Meliodas's and Elizabeth's relationship over the quote the two episodes, the two seasons, and the four episode OVA, and. That comes to be, like, a loving couple relationship. But in the same way that you accept the flaws of someone else, of someone, of your significant other, Elizabeth just accepts that she loves this guy who's a total pervo and pervs on her constantly and does things like, just stick his head under her skirt while she's talking to him. And it... In the Year of Our Lords 2018, this may seem like craft and insulting and borderline offensive, but she pays it no mind. She, she is completely unfazed by the fact that this weirdo just like is constantly feeling her up and constantly like molesting the daylights out of her as I expressed before and it's just it's kind of charming in the way that Fujiko's that Lupin's obsession with Fujiko is kind of charming in Lupin the Third which for those of you who don't know Lupin the Third, uh, or if you haven't seen Lupin the Third, which you should totally do that because it got new stuff, and you should. It Lupin is always pretty good, but the latest Lupin is really good to fantastic. So you should definitely look, go find that. But the kind of general rule of Lupin, and that is, it, there is objectification of women. But it is only one woman who is objectified, and that's Fujiko, and she is in total fucking control of it. And this show, what it does in that regard is Elizabeth is constantly fondled and molested, and like, well, molested molested isn't isn't accurate. I shouldn't be using that word. She's constantly, like, 
she's constantly fondled by Meliodas, but the only people who react to it are other characters. They beat they beat him up for it, but she's fine with it and continuously tells people, "I'm cool with this. Don't worry about me. I'm cool with it." So, it, what the show does, and it's a little bit of having its cake and eating it too, but what it does is it says, this is the relationship between these two people, they are okay with it, but everyone else is made uncomfortable, so they react to it. And in that, in that relationship, it embodies this kind of ethos of the show going forward, and that is this, like, through line of love with all the characters. So, later on, you meet a character named Bon, and he's called Undead Bon, and that is because, for whatever reason, the show hasn't told you just yet, he is immortal. Nothing can kill him. There's only one person who has ever even put a scar on him, and that is Meliodas. And Vaughn is one of the seven deadly sins. He is the fox sin of greed. And that's because he's this kind of legendary immortal thief. But he's also the fox sin of greed, which means he's one of the seven deadly sins, and he's the holy knight of Leonis. And you find out later that the, re the reason he's immortal is because he went to the fairy king's forest and drank from the and drank from the fountain of youth the fountain of immortality the fountain of youth and so he is cursed to be immortal forever until time extinguishes basically but he also fell for the guardian of that forest Elaine and Elaine is a fairy probably hundreds of years old but because anime is a thing she looks like she's 12, let's say. But she's, she's supposed to be way older than that. <laughs> so the, the anime does the immortal 400-year-old vampire wave of Dance of the Vampire Bond on Elaine's character. But it's... The anime expresses explicitly by killing her these characters can never be together. Until the second season when they do an end run of her coming back to life due to magic. And they, and they are very much together as a couple. They kiss, they embrace. It, and everyone in the Seven Deadly Sins just accepts it. There is no... There is no question about should they be together, shouldn't they be. But you're... You are... As a viewer, because of the age difference, meant to think it's weird. <laughs> or because of the apparent, quote-unquote, the visual age distance, meant to think it's odd. But it's... Really not. It's two people who have once again 
agreed on the parameters of the relationship, and are totally okay with it. But in this, in the case of Meliodas and Elizabeth, it's seen as weird. But in this case, it's seen as normal. So, it's just... Uh, in that, you have another presentation of a kind of love. Of a kind of eternal, everlasting love. Which is interesting. Because it's the... You have this character who is this despicable, fucking maniacal psychopath in Bon. And then you have this, like, beautiful, angelic fairy in Elaine. But when they're together, there's no, there's no clash of their personalities. They are still themselves, but they are themselves in a relationship with each other. And it's... I guess what I'm trying to say here, and we'll get to it again with all the other characters, because like I said, they are... There's this surrounding ecosystem of love that forms the groundwork for this story to work off of. And, but the show gives you example after example after example that basically tells you, love who you want, it's okay. Well, obviously, like, is being a pedophile okay? No. But it's saying, as long as it's consensual, it's okay. If you want... As long as you, as it's consensual and everyone truly understands their place in a relationship, can truly comprehend it, uh, who whose right is it to tell you that that's wrong? And the next demonstration you have of this is in King, who is another fairy character, who is one of the seven deadly sins. I think he's I forget what sin he is. Um, but he is he is the um the the grizzly the grizzly sin of the that that's the other thing about the show is they they used to set they they use the kind of Christian in imagery of sins and commandments, command the commandments, the Ten Commandments come later, as the kind of, as a kind of backbone, so people understand the severity of the of the characters they attach to those sins, and that's it. There's no like Christian connection to this, so. I think the grizz the grizzly sin of the the grizzly sin of sloth the sin of sloth is king and king is this like a like seemingly little boy character who is supposed to be the fairy king but no one but they don't verify that until later and he is actually Elaine's older brother 
but and what you don't see is that King is actually this like big, hairy, creepy weirdo, but he keeps himself transformed as this little like as this little like ten year old boy because not just because because he was rejected by the person he loves. Diane, who is the serpent sin of envy, and Diane's deal is that she is, she is, has chronic memory loss, basically. She is like um, Drew Barrymore from Fifty First Dates, basically. She gets, like, conked on the head all the time, and she always forgets about what... Whatever has happened to her in the past. So, when you meet her, she has forgotten about the fact that her and King know each other from a long time ago, and they have feelings for each other. But she never forgets about, because she always has a time in the recent past, Meliodas, and she has forgotten about King, but fallen in love, but fallen for Meliodas, and is, like, pissed when she finds out that Meliodas is ultra into Elizabeth, and just, like, like, heaps attention on Elizabeth, but she wants to, but Diane wants Meliodas for herself. Hence the... Hence the fact that she's the serpent sin of envy. Um, but she, she's also a giant. And with Elizabeth and Meliodas and Bon, you seemingly, who are like the, who are like three characters that you encounter early on in the show, you seemingly never really get the gist of what, the seven deadly sins really represents. And what it represents is the totality of what they call of what they call the races of this world, which are the demon race, the human race, the fairy race, and the giant race. Now these different races don't talk to each other. Oh, and there's also the goddess race, but we'll get to them. We'll get to them. Um, they all fought at some point 3,000 years ago, but then they all stopped interacting with each other entirely. Except for the seven deadly sins of Leonis, of which you have Leanne, who is a giant, you have fairy, you have king, who is a fairy, And you have, um, what's it called? Um, you have Meliodas, who is revealed to, who is later revealed to be a member of the demon race, who is banished to another dimension, who is sealed in a hole 3,000 years ago. But, they... The idea of the seven deadly sins is that they're supposed to be an elite force, or so the show tells you, but it's not. It's not that they're an elite force. 
they they don't treat each other like they're like the military force. They treat each other like friends who are weirdos who hang out together would treat each other. They all know each other. They all call each other by their first name. They all like they're this big happy fucked up weird dysfunctional family. And even when they do things to hurt each other, there's reasoning behind it. Or they're doing something that one person doesn't like, that the other person doesn't like, but to help that person. So, in the past, the, I think the sin of um, Merlin who is a character in this show, because of course they have Merlin as a character, although she's a weird, lustful, she's a weird, like, um, she, she's an odd character. But Merlin, the, the sin of gluttony, or the boar sin of gluttony, is this, like, mystical wizard wears hot pants and, like, an open lab coat that curls around her boobs individually and flares out. And boots, because, you know, a girl's got to be practical. She's got to have her boots. Um, <laughs> but she... She steals power away from Miliotis. Or it's alleged that she stole something from Miliotis. You find out later that that she stole a portion of his, like, magical power, a portion of his, like, demonic power that he later gets back. But you find out that she took it because he couldn't control it. And so she took it so he could, like, exist in the world. And it... Takes on a much less sinister connotation because you realize that she, she may have stolen that, but she did it for him. She did it for a friend, basically. But it, this show's a plot is fine. It is, you know, it is power fantasy one hundred one. It is. You know, big powerful good guys going up, big going against big powerful bad guys. It is. It eventually gets into like power levels and magical bullshit. But where the show shines, if you haven't figured it out yet, is the relationship of the characters and the way the characters play off each other. And uh, my personal favorite relationship in the show is um. The relationship of Bon to Meliodas, and all the Seven Deadly Sins call Meliodas Captain because he's the captain of the Seven Deadly Sins. But Bon and Meliodas, they have this like fucked up sibling relationship that's amazing in that the, the way they relate to each other a lot of times is by beating. The ever-loving snot out of each other, <laughs> because Bond is the only one who can take who can take a who can take a punch and come back from it from Meliodas because he's the only one who won't die. Actually, there's one other person who won't die, but we'll get to him in a minute. 
And Meliodas just genuinely likes Bon. Genuinely thinks of him as a real friend. And so when they first when you first encounter Bon in the show, he is in prison and Melio's like, we're gonna break him out. And Leanne's like, okay. I guess we're gonna go get Bond now. And Elizabeth is really confused. She's like, why are we breaking into prison? Why are we getting this guy out? And then they break into prison. And Bond's just like, oh, hey, you're here. I guess I should leave now. And burst out of the chains. And then they... Uh, and then Millie's like, Wait, we haven't done it yet. He's like, what do you mean we haven't done it yet? And he's like, oh, yeah. And they get down the floor. And they have an arm wrestling competition. And I forget who wins. It might have been Bon. But, they, but he slams, but someone slams their hand down so hard that it breaks through the roof of the prison because he's on the kept on the top floor, and the whole thing come fucking crashing down around them as they're just kicking the shit out of each other. And it's this... It's this insane, over-the-top, very anime way to, like, handle the relate of, like, sibling rivalry, like, fun relationship. But it makes you feel like that's the relationship. Just the way Leanne's, or, or uh, um, Leanne or Diane? I think it's Diane, but it might be Leanne. Just the way Diane's envy towards, uh, just the way Diane's feelings for the captain feel less purely romantic, they feel more adorational, like, almost like a little sister looking at an older brother at, before they know how to, like, separate, they know how to separate romantic love from adorational love, or, like, romantic love from familial love, so she sees Elizabeth being, like, the romantic love in, like, her older brother, basically her older brother's life, and interprets that as, this girl is stepping in my cornflakes, yo. But the... And eventually she, ga she regains her memories, and she realizes, you know, at first she regains her memories, and she realizes that King is the person she's in love with, and then King disappeared at the beginning of the second season um, to go deal with something with Bon. But after, but after that happens, a character who they didn't really use much in the first season, and they used more but still less in the second, and who will probably come into play heavily in the third because it will be a third season of this freaking show, is Gozer, the goat sin of... I think the goat sin of lust. Um, but give me a second, and I will let you know. Go, um, yeah, the... Um, the goat sin of lust. 
And go, but the curious thing about Go Gother is that he is portrayed as being a doll. He he is a doll that is like enchanted by a great wizard. And you find this out in season two from Merlin. And his deal is that he doesn't is that he is totally apathetic to most things. He is he is somehow a seven deadly sin. You find out later that he is also one of the tech, the I think he's the um, commandment of selflessness. Um, yeah, he's a he's the um, he's also the commandment of selflessness. But you see this character who has no comprehension of what love is and of what feelings are. And he is constantly on this hunt to figure that out. And he's on this hunt to understand it. And, but he functions from this, like... Because he doesn't understand what feelings are, he doesn't understand... It, it, it framed as this kind of sociopathic thing. And he needs to be restrained because he is basically a sociopath with no with with not just a broken moral compass. It's not like he's Mikazuki August who is like developmentally fucked up. It is that he never had a moral compass to begin with, so he doesn't understand like why he doesn't understand why you shouldn't burn ants on the driveway. He doesn't understand why that's cruel. He, but he wants to, but he understands that you can do it. And he does do it. In the second, in the beginning of the second season, he this a girl who's interested in him. And he erases this girl's memories of basically the past events, which ended up being this colossal, like, world, almost world-ending battle in which her, I believe that character's father was killed. But he said, he thinks, he thinks to himself, like, this is a way to figure out what love is and try to get, and try to have some love for myself, so I'm going to erase everything in this woman's memory so she focuses only on me. Because in his brain, in his, like, weird, fucked up, non-existent moral compass, that's what love is. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Because he doesn't understand not only love, but he doesn't understand, like, familial relationships. And you realize that these, these characters are... That those, those two characters are used as kind of a micro I use this kind of example of like this is the problem with Gozer this is why you like keep an eye on Gozer because he's I don't think the word is sociopath because oh well, maybe the word is sociopath he he doesn't he doesn't understand what he's doing and he doesn't under and but the show 
supposes that he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't know quite why. And he doesn't know that he has people who care about him. He can't recognize that in himself or anyone else. So he ends up actually stealing Diane's memory. He ends up actually erasing Diane's memories again, which means that he's erased her memories of King again. And her and Diane and King ultimately become an item because that reality was always there. And so you have a giant and a fairy who is, like, child-sized become a couple again. Be become a couple through sick and thin because... The baseline attraction to each other was always there. And it was there irrespective of what each of them looked like, the actual height and weight of each of them. It was there because of who they are as people. And real talk here, as a disabled kid who watched... The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I was fucking, and is still fucking pissed that they figured out a way to make it okay that a disabled person does not get the girl, and he's fine with it. It's really refreshing to see a show that says it doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. N none of that, like, visual stuff matters. Now, granted, it all matters somewhat, but none of that... That visual stuff... And that, like... That posturing... Is not what makes a great relationship. If two people get together... If two beautiful... If Hollywood has taught us anything, if two beautiful people get together because they're beautiful... That's the relationship of each other, look, of those two looking at a mirror, looking into a mirror at themselves next to each other. It's not based on a whole lot. In order for a relationship to thrive, it has to be based on something deeper than appearances, looks, race, nationality, sex. Uh, and it's rare that any show really... It's rare that any show embodies that without sitting the viewer down and saying, this is what this is about. And without making the viewer feel like they're watching a PSA. Another show that did this was... Another show that, done this, that did this twice was Avatar, The Last Airbender. Was Avatar, The Last Airbender show, but also The Legend of Korra. In that show, you have... Characters of dis of different races, on, on different sides, fall in love with each other. You have characters from like different levels of society, different levels of importance, all that stuff fall in love with each other because of who they are as people. And by the end of that show, you it's like a nations of the world unite situation. And everyone is, like, they're all in it together. And that's what the 
unit of the seven deadly sins feels like. They feel like they're all in it together through thick and thin and through whether or not they... Whether or not... Regardless of whether or not they are flawed or not. Because they are all very flawed. And the reason why all of them have the nicknames they have, like Gozer, the Goat Sin of Lust, um, Merlin, the Boar Sin of Gluttony, is because they all embody that sin somehow. In Gozer's case, he does everything because he is lusting after a heart. He believes that he is looking for a heart of his own because he is a doll. Um, metaphor metaphorically speaking. But in Meliodas' case, he is this like kind pervy weirdo who is also like deeply angry and has the kind of deep anger and extreme power to act on that anger and it that anger has turned to wrath. That's why he's called the Dragon Sin of Wrath. Bon is a little on the nose. He started off life as a thief, hence the Fox Sin of Greed. But what he is ultimately seeking to do at the point you meet him in the show is find a way to reverse death. He's greedy enough to say, I want this person back from the grave. And he's willing to lie, steal, and cheat to get it. He realizes later, like, uh, he, he has a character arc that leads him to understand that he, he can't do that at the cost of his friends, but hence that thing. Hence that scenario. Now, the, there's a kind of curious absence of romantic anything for the character Merlin in the first season and in the OVAs. And then you get to the second season. You're introduced to a character by the name of Escanor. And he's really pretty fucking great. And Escanor runs this tavern in the middle of a fucking mountain called My Sweet Gluttony. And if you've been paying attention, you realize that Merlin is the is the Borison of Gluttony. And the reason she is that is because she wants to know all there is to know in the world. And Escanor, this like like meek, frail, skinny, glasses wearing, like gingerly bartender with, like, orange hair, orange, like, handlebar mustache. Think, like, lanky, kind, Yosemite Sam mustache. Um, is, is in love with her, but he is, he realizes that he's not in love with her. Like, he real, he, in his brain, he thinks to himself, I can never be with her because of the other side of the way he is. He's only this, like, lanky, like, meek character, either at night 
or when he at, during the during the, the night time or when he's like exhausted or exhausted or not fighting otherwise he is Escanor the lion sin of pride and Escanor and this is one of the better parts of this show and that is that up until now, the most powerful character you've ever encountered is Bon. He is supposed to be this, like, it, it's, um, not Bon, Meliodas. Meliodas is this, like, unstoppable, truly powerful, holy knight captain that nobody could ever hope to best. But then the show does something interesting. It says... Meliodas isn't the strongest person here. The absolute strongest person in this show, bar none, is Escanor. And they, they use him as this, like, trump card for battles you shouldn't care about. <laughs> Which is really amazing, because all the villains you should care about are like, Holy shit, it's Escanor! We are fucked. We are fucked to hell. And it's just, it's really satisfying for them to, instead of, like, focus the complete power trip on the main character, just move that just to the left of center of the frame. And it's, it, it lets that character be this fun, like, entertaining character without having to have power creep because there needs to be no power creep because he's already there. The the problems with that he encounters are I can't fight here because I'm gonna melt everybody who's my friend. But the it's just and it's the reason why it's called why he's named the Lion Sin of Pride is because the like half of his personality the the big bulky like giant man is very aware at all times that he is the goddamn best and that no one can come even close to him. And it's just, it's, it's kind of wild and great. But, and the place I want to end this on is really the, the, things surrounding the main cast of this show and what and characters they bring and side characters they bring kind of almost into the main cast of this show. Um because the side characters, in addition to having really interesting character designs, are are used and given character arcs in a way that's not that's been done in anime before, but is uncommon because of the way that most anime like this are structured. So, the way they treat side characters in this show is similar to the way they treat side characters in a show like Bleach. Or, um, actually, Bleach is a really great example, but also like Naruto. In that they, instead of saying... We don't have time to focus on what's happening with this character. 
they take enough time to focus with, on that character, and does that... Is that to the story's detriment sometimes? Probably. But... That kept... By focusing on that character, they help build the world up, and they help build people's relationships with those characters up, so you care about those characters, too. You care about the characters who are being controlled by evil in the first season when you see them being threatened by evil in the second season because you you saw you saw what happened to them and you but by the mere fact that you see that character design being threatened by another, by another different character design you're like oh no which is which is really great and it this show is as much about the a plot which is um big bad evil coming to destroy the world big big awesome good trying to fight back the big bad evil as it is about the character's relationships and but and it proves that by the end of its second by the end of the second season which I just finished watching yesterday by main character Meliodas saying I know what I have to do. I know that I have to become almost heartless to protect who I care about. And it terrifies me. Because it, earlier on in the second season, you're le you, they give you exposition of Meliodas had previously, previously loved someone. Truly loved them, like loved them, lived with them as a couple. Blah 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 blah. When he lost her, he went berserk and wiped a nation off the map. Like giant, like world-ending style, giant cell destructo, giant freezer destructo ball style, wiped an entire kingdom off the map inside of an hour. And he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want to that to happen. He doesn't want to lose anyone else. But that means that he would have to give up the humanity he has. And there's an exceptional moment in that in that scene where he's saying that because Elizabeth, who is Who the show treats like she has full agency and is a confident, a confident, capable woman. By this point, they they treat her like that constantly, but they focus on that in the second half of the anime of the second season. Says, I don't care. Whatever side you're on, I will be next to you until the end of time. And it's just... It's just a touching, meaningful, passionate moment for two characters who love each other.
And they... The, sh the way the show kind of ends its second season run is with these moments over and over again. It ends it with Bond deciding to... That in order to protect his friend, he needs to give up the possibility of living forever with of living with his the person he loves. It ends it's at a different point. It ends with it there's a point at which Leanne and King at which King truly confesses to Leanne and he tells her that he has feelings for her and even if Leanne doesn't truly understand it, she comes to understand it. And that is demonstrated, like, plainly and clearly. And even a relationship like Escanor and, um, what's it called? Like, Escanor and Merlin is given a kind of contextualization that says they appreciate each other. The only one who isn't given that kind of realization is Gozer. And there's a reason for that, and the show will probably get into that in its third season. Its, third, its actual third season, not its Netflix third season. But, um... It's just, this show is tell is not telling a story about monumental good versus colossal evil. It is telling a story about relationships and the way relationship and the kinds of things relationships have to go through. And that's, but it's doing it through the lens of, like, the good versus evil high fantasy magic clash. I, I just think that's a really admirable thing, which is why I wanted to talk about the show. They also, in another hilarious, we know, and this is the last thing I'll dip into, they have a fighting festival episode in the first season, but they have an arc in the second season. Or I think there's an arc in both seasons. But the second season... Fighting Festival is much better because it's run by one of the main villains of the show. And they start off like, Welcome to this time waster, I mean fighting festival. Which, once again, is a perfect example of this show knows what it's doing. And it knows its audience knows what it's doing. It does not give a shit. And that combined with the focus on the relationship between people and characters and races and all that stuff is what makes this show a lot of fun. However, on that note, if you like this podcast or you like any of the other podcasts that you've heard from me, you can subscribe to this podcast in your app of choice by clicking the link in the description. I promise I'll try not to fuck that up this time. Um, you can also rate and review me on iTunes. That helps a lot. Or on your podcast app of choice. And all of it helps other people to find this podcast. You can share it with one of your friends. 
Um, and you can donate to me if you want. I'm not saying you have to, but you can do it. It is, you can give me a monthly, like, tip of a monthly tip jar thing. You can also find that in that same link. You can go subscribe to the podcast on basically everything. Um, but that said, I have been Alex. You've been listening to Lunchbox Radio, and I'll talk at you next time.